Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 54 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm apparently Chief Justice Marshall. <laughs> you, you, you look just like him. <laughs> Pass well, me the Madeira, man. Well, actually, if you look at the, the courtroom sketch from yesterday, I actually look a little bit like John Hamm. Oh, is that right? I mean, you know, okay, I, I'm, I'm he, really excited to see this. Can you please, please forward that, and we will tweet that out through the podcast the, account. The, the, I'm really Steve Vladek. You guys probably figured that out, but the the courtroom sketch artist for the Supreme Court. Um, so one way to look at it is he did me some real favors, um, and not, the other way I to look at it is I certainly wouldn't complain about being drawn as John Hamm. No, but like now it's like, well, do I actually you know want to get a copy of a print that doesn't actually look like me at all? I mean, <laughs> all right, readers, I'm, I'm, I'm showing give it. To, I'm showing Bobby's live reaction. That is a fine drawing. You, you look authoritative. Okay, so what I'm looking at here, it looks like Briar looks like he's having tro- trouble holding his head up and he's staring at you in confusion. That sounds about right. But uh, you have a hand up, one hand on the lectern, one hand up in the air, holding forth. Yeah, there, there is a bit of John Hamness, but I think it's a, a, that's a completely legit, I would hang that for sure. <laughs> it doesn't we'll look make, like me at all. We're going to make podcast t-shirts <laughs> that will go on the back. Um, all right, so obviously we need to talk as one of our items today about Don Mazzi. You argued before the Supreme Court of the United States yesterday. That's and what I hear. Devotion to our audience, you're back here now to tell us how or, it works. Or, or devotion to my federal court students who, who had to take class this morning at 1030. <laughs> yeah, too bad we didn't have another ice day. Um, no, I was okay with that, actually. Yeah, that was nice. Huh. So we'll talk about Dalmazi. And uh, in, meanwhile, also happening, lesser known activity happening in D.C. <laughs> Slightly more important. While everyone was all eyes on John Hamm arguing at the Supreme Court, oh, yeah. over at the Senate, uh, the 702 renewal legislation overcame its final significant procedural hurdle as cloture was obtained to end the filibuster. Uh, we'll talk about what is in this bill that, though not yet signed into law, should be probably tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And um, then we've got a new habeas petition arising out of Guantanamo that I think we agree this presents some really important issues. I don't know if we'll agree on its likely fate, but we'll talk about that. A mass action that was filed last uh, Thursday to coincide with the 16th anniversary of Guantanamo's opening. Is a is a mass action uh, the same as a class action? No. In <laughs> just, fact, that's I'm, just good packaging. I chose that term on purpose. Yeah, um, a mass action is a, a multi-plaintiff action that is not on behalf of a class. In this case, mass meaning 11. All right. That's 25% of the remaining detaining population. It is your, your math is correct, as is mine. <laughs> uh, so then we will wrap up with some frivolity, um, a really uh, important topic we're going to raise. Very important. We're going to talk about best sitcoms. <laughs> That's right, kids. There used to be a format on television. 30 minutes. Uh, I think that... There's still Modern Family. Yeah, there, there absolutely still are a few of these. And, and my brother-in-law writes for the Goldbergs, so I've got to, you know, at oh, okay. least recognize that. <laughs> so you got you got a dog in this fight. Uh, well, sort of. Yeah, all right. So we'll talk about best sitcoms at the end. Uh, Steve, shall we talk Dalmazi first? Sure. <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> friends, if... if like you know, very few others, but if nonetheless you're in this rare group that hasn't yet read the transcript of the Dalmazi argument. Um, what are you waiting for? Well, yeah, indeed. What are you waiting for? And you may not have noticed something curious. Uh, there's <laughs> the usual bit where the chief justice you know, calls the case, and, and then there's a description in the court reporter's notes. It just says brackets, laughter. And then you begin your argument. Steve, why was there laughter as you began? Yeah, the, this is, it, it's not every day that you see a Supreme Court transcript where it says, Mr. Vladek, laughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I wish I could take credit for this, but this is actually all the Chief Justice is doing. The, the previous argument yesterday had been all about what made a particular series of cases, quote, consolidated cases, unquote, under Rule 42. So the courtroom, which was full of military lawyers, had just basically spent an hour debating the finer points of the definition of consolidated cases. And the chief introduces the cases as Dalmazi and, as he says, and he had playing to full effect. He says, and the consolidated cases. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so, so it was not, in fact, my name that provoked the laughter, or as Oren Kerr speculated online, my fumbling with the hand crank that raises the podium. But um, did you fumble with the hand crank to raise the podium? I, I, I think all reports are that I handled it quite well. Smoothly, that that yes. no, fu- no fumbles occurred in the raising of this podium. I love it. Okay, so I'm picturing sort of a sea of uniforms behind you. There was a sea of uniforms. Uh, is it fair to say they represented uh, both sides in the case, or did you have I actually think it was posse? heavier defense. I think yeah. it was, uh, you know, because the, the case obviously has a lot of implications 
for um, especially the Army uh, defense lawyers. And so there were a whole bunch of Army and a, a sort of small number of Air Force uh, defense lawyers in the room. And by regulation, military officers who go to the Supreme Court have oh, to yeah. wear their Class A's. Class A's. So uh, let me, for the sake of listeners who, who haven't previously been listening to the show. Where have been, you been? Yeah, where, hey, where have you been? Or welcome, friends. <laughs> welcome, friends. And also, what were you thinking? Here you are now. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, so Dalmazi is the case Steve uh, argued yesterday. True. And, and in a minute, Steve will kind of remind us of exactly what was at stake there. But I'm curious before we get to that, Steve, um, what's it like? You wake up, you, you were smart to be there the day before, especially since the ice storm yeah. hit here and yeah, lots yeah. of flights were canceled. Um, you know, so tell us about how you, how'd you prep that day? What did you eat for breakfast before you go to the Supreme Court? And do you get to go in a special door? Do they do, they do anything special for you? Or do you just wander in there like any other uh, observer? <laughs> um, there, there are no special doors. I, I had granola and yogurt. It was a very exciting Solid breakfast. choice. Uh, there are no special doors. I will say, I mean, the if folks have never been to an oral argument at the Supreme Court, it is very organized and compartmentalized in how they sort of divide up those who are going into the courtroom. And there are different lines in different places. So there's one line for members of the Supreme Court bar. There's one line for members of the public. And then there's a separate line for people who are guests who have tickets, um, guests of either the justices or guests of arguing counsel. Um, and apparently, I've now learned, the best status to have is arguing counsel. Because oh. when you're arguing counsel, like, none of the rules apply. Um, <laughs> so you can cut all the security lines. How'd you prove it, though? Just your they name's just take, on the list? They just take your word for it. It's just like, like a, I'm picturing sort of this velvet rope and the bouncers out there. And no, no. Steve kind of rolls up and they're like, Mr. Vladek. And they so, open the rope. So there, is in, fact, on there in. is, in fact, a velvet rope. Um, now, oh, mind you, you're not exactly great. allowed to walk around the building unescorted. True. But what they do is they keep almost everybody else on the ground floor until about 9, 9.15, Arguing counsel, as soon as the lawyer's lounge is open, they let you go upstairs and check in and, you know, be in the lawyer's lounge, which is like a quieter, calmer place. Something sounds like the airport. You got you got the uh, frequent flyers and the premium flyers. There's uh -huh. a lounge yep. to go yep. in. It's very much like the airport. Um, um, uh, more uh, a, fl a flagship carrier than Southwest, right? right? Assigned seating, not open seating. Yeah, um, okay. And, and so, you know, I got there, I got there probably around 8.15 because I'm a neurotic, crazy person. Mm -hmm. Um, and mostly, you know, Karen, my wife, was going in on the Supreme Court bar line. Um, so she actually, so I, so I sort of hung out with her in the Supreme Court bar line for a while. Um, and then right about nine, uh, my co-counsel and I went up to the lawyer's lounge, hung out for a while, got the full briefing from the clerk, got our special little cards that said we were, you know, arguing counsel. That's a keeper. Um, well, it's, it's, it's A, it's a keeper, and B, we're, the, we're like the people, we're the only people who are like allowed to go in and out of the courtroom. Yeah. Because uh, like once you're in, you're supposed to just stay in. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we probably went in about 9.30, sat down, you know, sat through the first argument, the, the scintillating debate about the finer points of Rule 42, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Nice. Um, and then it was go time. That's fantastic. And how did you feel about how it went? So um, the, the short version is I think I did as well as I could have, and I think I'm going to get my butt kicked. Um, you know, I had a good time. I think, I mean, if folks should decide for themselves if they, if they check out the transcript or if they listen to the audio, which will be up on Friday. Um, but, you know, the court just didn't seem that deeply interested in the merits issues in the case. Um, and although that could cut either way, when the government's lawyer got up there um, and got exactly one question from the entire bench on the merits, and the question was, you know, it, which way do you want us to rule for you, basically, from the <laughs> chief justice? Um, I think it's a bad side. What did they show interest in? So this case, let's let's back up, especially for the benefit of listeners who yeah. haven't followed what Dalmaz is all about. So this is all about the dual office holding band where uh, currently serving military officers uh, are not supposed to, without specific congressional dispensation, yep. serve in civilian offices. And you have this judicial uh, overlap where you have people from the Court of Military Commission Review. You've got the, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. An issue has arisen in... in your your client is uh, someone who would benefit if this dual office holding ban was imposed strictly in this case. Yep. Uh, there were procedural type questions. It set up like a great moot court problem. You had a yeah. whole oh. nest of issues on merits and process. Lots of lots of issues. And then this sort of uh, sort of orthogonal, as you said the other day, uh, <laughs> entry from the side of uh, of, our, of our colleague. Uh, uh, Aditya, who presented this uh, argument that maybe there's sort of a Marbury versus Madison problem with the whole notion of Supreme Court appellate review of uh, 
Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces yep. decisions. Yep. Uh, just focus on that one. Yeah, yeah. How, I mean, and we talked about it a bit last week. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that the court was, uh, did you, can you read the tea leaves on how the court reacted to that issue? They were far more interested in that issue than in any of the merits questions. Well, to the point of even asking you, and this, of course, must be said, it was it Justice Kennedy who yes. asked you, was Marbury versus <laughs> Madison correctly decided? What? You're a, you're a Fed courts nerd par excellence. That's it had to have been sort of a dream come true moment. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I will say, so So, I, I want to get to the Kennedy exchange because I actually think there's there's an interesting substantive point that's gotten lost in some of the, you know, hilarious, hilarity surrounding the fact that yeah, that, that was happened. made for Twitter, wasn't it? It really was, um, including the lack of nuance. Um, but, <laughs> but so, no, no, no. I mean, I, it's my fault, too. Um, so I, one of the things I was surprised by is I got, you know, probably 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes into my argument before anyone asked me about the Article 3 question, which I was sure was going to be right off the bat. Yeah, was it Justice Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor who said, hey, do you, do you have anything to say about this? Do, do you want to, you know, and, and I, I made some joke about how, well, you know, I do have my first federal courts class tomorrow. I noticed um, that. So the, the court was clearly the most interested in that question. Um you know, uh, I got probably 10 minutes of pretty active questioning about it. Aditya actually went over his 10 minutes. Yeah, they gave him some bonus time. Um, Brian Fletcher, you know, I think spent most of his time um, and almost all of his questions were on the Article 3 question. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think one of two things is true. Either, you know, they just haven't got dug into the merits and the multiple layers and the Article 3 piece was the part that was totally accessible to them. Right. Or they have, and they decide this is a nothing case. And so the Article 3 issue then, is the... Why did they grant cert to well, begin with? That's the that's the million-dollar question. I mean, the the emotional highs and lows of sitting through that argument, right? So I sat down after about 25 minutes feeling pretty good, right? I mean, I felt like I'd answered all the questions pretty yep. effectively. The exchange with Kennedy, which I still want to get to in a second, um, I was like... That went really, really well, question mark. Um, and then, you know, Aditya goes and talks about Article 3 for a few minutes. Um, and then Brian Fletcher gets up. Um, and, you know, as expected, he gets a whole bunch of questions about Article 3. And I was waiting to see what would happen when he turned to the merits. Yeah, and they just didn't. And just, like, Brian just kept talking. Um, and, you know, I think it's a pretty reliable indication when they don't ask. that when the court's not asking questions, it means that they're not bothered by what they're hearing. Um, and so, you know, I sort of, I had been like on, on tinder hooks about how things were going until Brian turned to the merits. And then like with every sort of... Yeah, the transcript, it just kind of goes on and on for a while. And, and, and just picture as it's going on and on, me sinking lower and oh. lower into my chair and being like, well, that was fun. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I, I'm not an expert in these issues. I mean, I have only limited understanding of, of the ins and outs of the case. But I thought you answered really well, and I was very impressed yes, with how you handled yourself. Um, so, so quickly on Kennedy. So the Marbury question, I think Kennedy was mostly having fun at that point. Like he, he had a sort of mischievous – I mean, one of the things that never comes through in the transcript is right. the – you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed is I felt like the justices were engaged at least during my presentation. Yeah. You know, I got Justice Thomas to, to chuckle a couple of times. Oh, yeah. I, I meant to say you, you didn't elicit a question, but you, you at least got him. I got Thomas. Thomas was definitely engaged. Um, at one point, Justice Breyer asked one of his like eleven-part yes, questions. That was a funny exchange. And, and I said, and I said, well, if you if you if you'll allow me, I'd like to answer those questions in order. And Breyer says it was one question, <laughs> yeah, was and, and so everyone starts laughing. And so I figured, what the what the hell, right? You yeah. know. And so I responded kind of cheekily. I said, well, perhaps you'll indulge me in multiple sentences. Okay, so here's here's a tasking for somebody out there who's just enterprising and thinks this sounds fun. So you can take these transcripts and. And you, you know, the, the index, it says yeah. laughter. I looked, and you have multiple entries. Yeah. So it should be possible for a sufficiently bored and detail-oriented right. person. This is what Jay Wexler does. Jay Wexler at BU, who is at SCOTUS Humor on Twitter. Oh, has he already done this? Like, which advocates elicit the most references to laughter? Huh, that's a good, I, don't know, I don't know if he's ever done it by advocate. Do it by advocate. That's what I want to I will say, it, it, it was well noted on Twitter just how many bracket, laughter, closed brackets there were in Dalmazi. I tried. I, I was going to tweet an image of the index with the entry showing like multiple, but I just thought, you know, this we, is really we, not serious. We, no, no, we had a good time. Um, so with Kennedy, so, you know, the at the heart of the Article 3 
debate, right, the sort of the substantive merits of the jurisdictional question, um, is exactly what it means for the Supreme Court to be exercising original versus appellate jurisdiction. I think we all accept, well, maybe not Justice Kennedy, but most of us accept that under Marbury, Congress is not allowed to expand the court's original jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And Article 3 says the court's only allowed to exercise original jurisdiction in cases in which a state is a party or cases affecting ambassadors, public ministers, and consuls. And so... You know, there is a relevant, Marbury is relevant to the Article 3 question insofar as you're trying to figure out where to draw the line between original and appellate. I I think, frankly, that this is an easy case, that when you have a court like the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces affirming a criminal conviction in a case, none of mine were such cases, but in cases that could include the death penalty. Right. Those are courts. Kennedy court. I mean, Kennedy said at one point to Brian Fletcher, like, do we have to define what a court is in in order to resolve this case? I don't think the answer is yes. We I mean, certainly I, don't have to define the outer boundary. That, well, so that's what I tried to say. So I tried to, what I tried to say was there are hard questions at the margins, like could Congress give the Supreme Court direct appellate jurisdiction over formal adjudications by the NLRB? Right. You they know, seemed very concerned with right. and, and picking I, up and not wanting to pick up jurisdiction and that's review, fine. all that stuff and, and that's directly. And that's totally fine. I think the key is Congress does not call things courts of record willy-nilly, right? right? And when Congress chooses to call something a court of record, it usually means something. Um, this led me, I had to I had to correct Justice Breyer, who was like, I thought the circuit courts weren't courts of record. I'm like, uh. Oh, no, they are. Oh, they are. Now, I did not have you, a, was that Was that a conflation of courts of record with original? Yes. Yeah. Um, now, I didn't have it at my fingertips, although it's literally in 28 USC section 43A that the circuit courts are courts of record. Right. But say la vie. So what, where Kennedy, I think, was going you know, Twitter reacted like, oh, my God, Kennedy's rethinking all judicial review. Um, <laughs> that's not so. It's really all about autonomy and personal dignity, wouldn't you say? Oh, gosh. Yeah, don't get me started on Kennedy. But in Kennedy's defense, what he was actually asking about, he was actually asking me a nerdy Fed courts question, um, which I think got lost in the shuffle. Let's hear right? It. So Marbury actually has multiple layers, right? It's most famous in con law for its, you know, obvious for, obviously for its discussion and its solidification of judicial review right. and of the Supreme Court's power to invalidate acts of Congress. Right. But in Fed courts, Marbury's import is in how it construes Article 3 in order to strike down Section 13 of the Judiciary Act. That is to say, in its reading of Article 3 as not allowing Congress to expand the Supreme right, Court's Right, it's a restrictive definition, uh, exhaustive and, definition. And there is a scholarly debate about that. I mean, I think Akhil Amar, our colleague Louise Weinberg, um, you know, there are a bunch of people who have written fairly compelling arguments that you could read the language of Article 3 as not allowing Congress to constrict the Supreme Court's right. original jurisdiction, but as not prohibiting Congress from expanding it. So there the list of original jurisdiction heads is illustrative, not exhaustive. Well, it's a floor, not a ceiling. Yeah. Um, and I think, basically, I think Kennedy was asking if I thought that Marshall's holding to the contrary, that uh, the original jurisdiction list is exhaustive, right. is correct. Whereas casual observers say, oh my God, there's no power of judicial review, or the Constitution's not law. Right. It's There, 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 there goes that Trump guy again. <laughs> um, so, so, so all this is to say, like, I actually think, I mean, Kennedy was deliberately being cheeky, but he was actually asking, I think, an appropriately yeah. nerdy question in, in context. I think it's safe to say that uh, in at least a few of the justices are going to have some fun with this opportunity that's yes. fallen into their lap yes. to say stuff about Marbury. That That's a little bit of a dream come true for the right frame <laughs> of mind. But imagine, I mean, you are a federal courts and con law professor. You are arguing not just your first case in the Supreme Court, but your first case ever. And 20 minutes into that argument, you get a question from, by anyone's account, the most important federal judge in the country. Is Marbury rightly decided? It's pretty great. So <laughs> next year, you should be able to supplement your syllabus with something fresh off the pen of that judge. Oh, perhaps yes. based on your colloquy. Something tells me Dalmazi's going to make it into the, you know, not not for the right reasons, but Dalmazi's going to be in the Fed Court's case. Don't sell yourself short. They, they granted cert before yeah. all this Marbury stuff entered into the picture. Well, That's and, the key. And so this is, I mean, listen, the, you know, I walked out of, if we can bracket the Article 3 stuff, because they now are clearly going to have to write an interesting opinion about appellate jurisdiction. Yeah. I walked out of the argument yesterday thinking like, you know, this case never had a chance in hell. And then the question is, why wasn't that obvious to them yeah. at the beginning? Well, who Who's the four? Right. Who, who are the four? Right. And I don't know because like I have yeah. no idea. For, you know, the only person who asked a question of the government on the merits was the chief justice. Do you, do you think it's possible that this is a case that might well have 
been improvidently granted from their perspective over time as they dug into it. But then the amicus issue made it interesting enough to them to want to keep it, and that's why they ended up giving so much attention to it. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just, I it's, I guess I just don't see. I mean, so they had this case for a while, right at the cert yeah. stage. It did. It wasn't a late breaking cert petition. Um, the 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 argument that I think is the most likely ground on which we're going to lose is exactly what the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces held, right? So, so there's nothing to discover here later. I, I just I, right. I mean, the, no balls were hiding here. Yeah. Well, then I think you must assume, therefore, more positively that there are in fact some of the justices who think there's something to your argument. Maybe I mean so 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 for example, I didn't get a single question in my at all on any issue from Justice Kagan. Right, who was yeah. who I thought was surprisingly quiet. Yeah. Um, the only questions she asked were jurisdictional questions, were Article Three questions of both Aditya and Brian. Right. And she seemed, I read that as yeah. fairly friendly to your. Right. So maybe, so maybe it's just that the that it, maybe it's not nine nothing, but maybe it's just c- completely clear that it's like seven to two or six to three. We'll see. Well, you know, you know from my NFL predictions last week that I like to bet on the underdogs, and that doesn't always go well. <laughs> well, I'm clearly the underdog. I yeah. think at this point. Well, we'll see. Um, right. But but the the short version though, I mean, let me just stop. Because I don't want to belabor this. I really, the the first ten minutes after the argument, I walked out feeling really bad. Like I walked out thinking that, like you know, oh my god, that was horrible. It was terrible, etc. And then I sort of sort of left. I was like, but what could I have done differently? This is this reminds me, you know, for uh, several years ago, someone created some reality TV show that was supposed to be like the litigators. Yeah, remember this? And uh, they give people this case, and of course they divide them into teams, and then kind of measure how they did. Now, and, and I always thought. You know, this is this is obviously not a completely level playing field because the case isn't necessarily a level playing field, and you have to you have to uh, grade on the curve, as yep. it were, for level of difficulty. So uh, I think, for what it's worth, you, you did as well as could possibly have been done. I, I think that's where I ended up too. And listen, I mean, everyone had a good time. That's for sure. <laughs> and at the end of the day, here on the NSL podcast, that's what counts. So I, you know, I, I I wouldn't be holding. I'm not holding my breath to see what 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 comes of this. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see it. We'll keep our Eyes open for it for at least one more Dalmazi discussion. And, of course, the audio will be up on Friday, so you can actually hear the laughter if you can't even see it. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. Well, we've Um, got some other stuff, some other uh, sort of more traditional national security law issues. Why don't we talk about uh, the case of Al-Bahani and others versus President Trump? This is a newly filed habeas corpus petition arising out of Guantanamo. And of course, there have been loads and loads of habeas petitions rising out of Guantanamo. All the detainees, including these detainees, have have pursued them uh, for the most part before. Um, so this time, the Center for Constitutional Rights and Reprieve and, and, and a number of co-counsel have all banded together a group of 11 of the detainees and filed what is what was rolled out on the anniversary of Guantanamo's opening as a, as a a big deal, something new under the sun sort of petition. And I and I agree that it is. It is raising what I would consider the next generation set of issues that have always been out there waiting to be raised. That we've seen a glimpse of it before with some Afghan Taliban detainees. Now we're getting it with um, people accused of involvement with uh, uh, Al Qaeda. Um, Steve, what is your sense of whether do you want to describe for our listeners sort of what the, the gravamen of, of what's the novelty here that, that enables them to come in with what is a second or successive petition? And normally, of course, that sort of thing's uh, disfavored. What, what makes them think they can come in now and relitigate a habeas? What's the new issue? Well, I mean, first, I, I'm not sure that second and successive petitions are disfavored in this context, right? The, They're certainly not statutorily regulated the way that criminal uh, right. habeas so, so, so I mean, Andrew Kent and I actually had a long fight about this back in 2013 um, on the pages of Penumbra, the online companion to the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. Um, and 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 I, you know, it's a, it was an interesting fight at the time. Andrew was taking the position that there ought to be comparable second or successive constraints, not 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 equal. I mean, not as categorical as they are in the post-conviction context. As sort of a matter of the common law of habeas? Common law, comedy, I mean, all of the sort of deference doctrines, right? Um, Just so listeners are aware, there in, in when it comes to uh, collateral habeas attack on a criminal conviction, there is a statute from 1996 that very carefully regulates it, tries to, tries to narrow it such that you can only bring a, a second round of habeas with permission of a court of appeals based on a showing of newly discovered evidence or a newly applicable constitutional interpretation from the court. And and the circuit courts, not surprisingly, interpret those rules incredibly narrowly and tightly and in ways that cause all kinds of mischief. Right. But that statute, by its terms, does not apply here. Right. So, that, right. so there's no formal obstacle to doing this. Uh, what is it that's new under the sun? So I, I think, so there are, 
I think there are three different ways to understand the claims that are being advanced in the petition. So I think the first, Bobby, is in some ways just a rehash of the end of hostilities type claim, right, that we've already seen in, among other cases, al-Warafi and al-Alwi. And I think that's actually the least new of the sort of claims under the sun. The two claims that strike me as sort of newer under the sun um, go more to the notion that if you are not providing some kind of process, if you are not periodically reviewing these detentions, if you are not doing anything to continually reassess your justifications for holding these individuals, that that is by definition arbitrary detention. Um, And that arbitrary detention is prohibited by both the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment and by international law. And that's a claim we haven't really seen, certainly as so styled, um, in prior rounds of the Guantanamo habeas litigation. I think that's fair. So to recap, um, one cluster of issues or arguments, and, and these are interlocking arguments that mutually support one another. One claim is that the actual state of affairs on the ground out there in the world is no longer, if ever it was, no longer an armed conflict with al-Qaeda, et cetera. And therefore, under the, under the rationale of law of war detention, the rationale is expired. Therefore, detention going forward is no longer authorized or has ceased to be authorized. That's one set of arguments. Um, the second set of arguments is that precisely because President Trump himself has said various things about never releasing anyone from Guantanamo, uh, the idea is that the gates for exit have been closed and depicted as a permanent closure. And if that's the case, then A, you've delinked from the law of war, because that's not how the law of war works. Uh, B, you've you've uh, created the situation of arbitrary detention, as you've said. And then there are various constitutional and statutory and international law ways of suggesting that now we have an illegality. Um, so I wrote a long post kind of engaging. I tried, I tried, I hope I did fairly depict what the arguments were. And there are, there are a number of arguments beyond what we've just said in the brief. And I kind of tried to come to grips with them. And I ultimately find them unpersuasive for, for a couple of reasons. Let me, let me sort of state the, the gist of why I wasn't persuaded by this and see if you agree or disagree. Um, on the expiration of the armed conflict, um, I absolutely think it is imp- it is a very fair argument to raise. I mean, there's there's no question that periodically we have to ask this question because the whole rationale of detention at Guantanamo is for the duration of hostilities. Therefore, we must constantly renew the inquiry. Do we still have hostilities? Fair enough. Um, I think the brief didn't do nearly what it would need to do to make a showing, even as an initial filing matter, that in fact hostilities have ended. There's some pretty cursory references to President Obama uh, famously or infamously declaring uh, a while back that combat operations in Afghanistan had ceased and how we're going to get into a training and equipping mode. But even a a, a casual quick Google of events in 2018 even, uh, let alone 2017, shows in fact combat operations are surging in Afghanistan. There was an article I think just yesterday about uh, the, the surge in air operations, airstrike in particular in Afghanistan. They're, they're increasing in various other locations. Um, personally, I, I certainly don't think the fact, uh, the factual grounds for showing the hostilities have ended uh, has, been, has been shown here or could be shown because I, I don't think they have. Um, so I think that argument, though super important, probably at least ultimately won't work. I don't think it works at this stage. Separately, to me, the very interesting thing, and I think you were saying you find this interesting too, this idea that Trump has created a legal problem for himself by declaring that no one can leave. Now, it gets interesting because this obviously, I I think, has an analogy to the travel ban litigation. And the travel ban cases show up. They're cited as if if CCR and Reprieve are encouraging uh, the court who gets this, which, by the way, it's Judge Richard Leon who's probably not going to be I think um, you know the first person out the gate to say you're right. Let's uh, let's take a strong anti-executive position, but you never know. Um, they're they're telling Judge Leon, look, uh, no matter what DOJ says, look at what Trump says. Just like in the travel ban cases, look at his tweets, look at his campaign statements. He has, I think, their phrase is uh, religious animus and uh, ex- executive hubris, and <laughs> that's what's really going on here. Um, all of which I think that that's. Rhetoric. It's, I don't find it persuasive yeah. at all. I think there's no question that the filing from the government, whatever form it takes, is going to say, look, our policy hasn't changed for right. more than a decade and a half. It remains we detain for the duration of hostilities. The fact that the president has said he doesn't want to, you know, there, there's some rhetoric from the president from the campaign, et cetera. 
unless the judge adjudicating the case is willing to sort of go full travel ban right. and say, I don't really care what you're saying your policy is. I'm looking at your tweets. I'm looking at your campaign statements. And I really don't think that's going to happen here for no. a variety of reasons. Um, I don't think their their critical premise for showing that it's become uh, a roach motel you can't leave is going to hold. <laughs> Indeed, I, I noticed just today, I got a notice from DOD's press office, you know, the next periodic review board is coming up. Right. And uh, they're taking media invitations. So uh, at, at the very best, the argument that there's no longer an exit and that this has become detached from the laws of war is, is premature. It, it hasn't – and it, I don't think you can prove that yet. Maybe it will turn out that way over time, but I'm, I'm doubtful it actually is. No, I think that's right. I, I think the more interesting claim – and I don't know if it's interesting enough to be meritorious, but it's at least different, right, from what we've seen before – is that there's just something arbitrary about – sort of putting these guys at Guantanamo and forgetting about them, right? That that so so imagine if it were the case that the president's rhetoric aside, this administration was committed to doing nothing, right? That it was openly formally committed to releasing no detainees from Guantanamo for any reason, perhaps with the exception of honoring the plea agreement in Al Darby. Um, and then the question becomes whether that of itself gives rise to some sort of newfound due process claim insofar as that would be purely arbitrary detention where the government would be conceding in effect that we're only holding them because we don't want to, because we've adopted this policy of no releases for anybody. Is, is your hypothetical assuming that they're breaking with the law of war justification that the hostilities are ongoing and they're saying whether they end or not, whether they're hostilities or not, we're just never releasing these people? Or, or at least, or at least that even if that they argue that, well, so I imagine they'll say we're not there yet, right? Right. Because um, they're clever lawyers. But one could imagine a court saying that there comes a point, even if the law of war detention model is still applicable, where the government at least has to do something to explain. Like, especially, I think the argument here is predicated on the processes that were put in place by both the Bush and Obama administrations. And the notion that once you set that ball rolling, stopping that ball creates its own due process problem. Yeah, so I, I'm, if that's the argument, I'm definitely not persuaded. You know, the uh, the relevant statute here, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, uh, contains language that goes uh, conspicuously unmentioned, uh, clarifying that the PRB's recommendations about releasing and transferring ultimately just recommendations. The Secretary of Defense has full discretion to accept or not accept. Um, and, there's, and, and, of course, the relevant orders all say the usual things about we're not creating rights, et cetera. But, but let me pause this a little. So imagine if – imagine this would never happen. But imagine a hypothetical where Mattis says, um, I refuse to – you know, any I, I will not honor – I will not comply – I will not sort of implement a PRB decision recommending clearance and transfer um, because I believe that all Muslims are out to get us. Right. Now, uh, oh, so uh, now you, you introduced an interesting wrinkle there. No, no. I, I said off the top, right? This is a pure right. hypothetical. My point is just that I don't think that the secretary's discretion is completely unbounded, right? Okay, uh, but in your in your example just now, I think what you the key is because uh, I agree with you that that would create an issue. But it's because now it's very clear if we accept that premise right. that it's no longer detention based on the continuation of ongoing hostilities to prevent. Even the if person. that was the proper justification. If the proffer no, you're saying the proffer justification. No, 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 no. I'm saying the secretary says so. The detention is law of war detention. Right. So then you have a fact issue, right? As to what is the, what is the basis for the policy? Well, and, so, and so imagine if that's where we go. So so obviously the claim here is not that the secretary of defense is motivated by anti-Muslim animus, right? But imagine if the claim was just that um, law of war detention is simply a um, pretext. Right for arbitrary detention of individuals who they don't have better decisions. Right, and, clear, for. and that's where this is so analogous to the travel ban. Right, um, and I and I just think that factually, whereas if if, if your hypothetical statement from a sectaf just expressly saying, hey, for on religious grounds, we're never letting any of these people go. If if they had something like that that seemed like that was actually in fact driving some policy, then of course you'd have to have some kind of inquiry to see what is the government's real policy, and it would get pretty thorny. Um, we certainly, in my opinion, don't have anything like that as to Guantanamo detention here. Um, I guess that's right. I just, I, I think that there may, I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about the oddity that here we are almost exactly a year into the Trump administration, and there's been literally no movement, not just actually on the ground at Guantanamo, but like policy-wise, right, that there's been no, and I guess the question is, could you imagine any set of facts where a commitment to inertia and a commitment to just 
keeping up the status quo would give rise to some kind of claim that this was arbitrary? Not as long as there is still a good faith claim that the armed conflict continues. And these were people that have had their day in court to adjudicate whether they were properly held under the law of armed conflict. If the administration decides, you know what, we're just not going to do discretionary releases of such persons, I just don't see where that creates. Uh, now, the the CCR in Reprieve's brief does, in, in an important footnote, try to make an argument that the law of war itself requires the periodic review. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a paragraph that basically says, look, if this was an IAC, an international armed conflict, then they say it periodic review of sorts is required. Now, th- this let me get nerdy about law of armed conflict for a second. Uh, they say this is for example, in the Third Convention and the Fourth Geneva Convention. They're right about the Fourth Convention. That's, that's you know, black letter that if you've got security internment in the Fourth Convention, part of the deal is you have to have periodic review of whether the grounds for the detention, the original imperative needs of security are still there. Um, under, under the Third Convention with POW detention, uh, you don't have to do that. That, that is absolutely not required. There's a there's an effort to make it seem as such. Um, I, I feel like in reading that footnote, but that's I think it's black letter law that if you've got someone who is properly held based on their status as a member of the enemy armed forces, yeah. and you're holding them as a POW under the third convention, there, there's no periodic review of like, well, nonetheless, this guy seems like he didn't really want to be a, in the enemy army. Let's let him go. There's nothing like that. Yeah. Of course, all that's beside the point. The is- interesting issue is since these guys are held neither as civilian security internees under the fourth, nor as POWs under the third. Indeed, not in the context of an IAC, but rather under what, at least sort of following the Hamdad model, uh, is a non-international armed conflict. So what do we say about that? You know, the, the uh, footnote in question in the brief says, well, it's it's kind of the same thing, whether you're, whether you're tre- treating them as analogous to security internees or as analogous to foreign fighter detainees, you've got to detain them no, long, no longer than is necessary for the original reasons for detaining them. And this is critical, they say, and membership, they assert, but don't really, in my opinion, explain, they assert membership alone can't be the basis for that. Well, I, I just don't think the law of war shows that in a NIAC detention setting, that membership alone can't continue to be the ongoing imperative reason. Listen, I, I think there's, I mean, I, just to, to sort of shorthand this, I think there's no question that this petition faces a serious uphill battle. Um, that said, I do think there is at least symbolic value in reminding everyone that this is still going on. I mean, I think it's, you know, the, with every anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo that passes, there's less and less attention paid to it. Um, now, part of that, I think, is a reflection that there's just not a lot new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about what's been going on in the commissions, but on the non-commission side of the things, right. there's been literally nothing. Right. Once the first round where everybody has their bite at the right. apple through habeas, once it runs its course, you don't really get... Unless you get new detainees, which we yeah, haven't exactly. had since 2008. Um, right. But, I, you know, I wrote a piece for CNN last Thursday that, like, four people, I think, have seen um, that basically said, listen, you know, the, the lawsuit can succeed without winning, um, right, if, it's, if it succeeds in at least drawing back some semblance of attention to the fact that there are 41 men, and even if you cut out the military commissions, right, there are, I'm trying to think, there are, what, um, 11 in the commissions, three, right, so there are, like, 27, 26 mm-hmm. outside of the commissions, um, we can't just wish them away. Like, they're, they're there. Like, the, we can forget about them, but that doesn't make them go away. So I think you're certainly right that, especially with interest group, uh, uh, advocacy group litigation, there's there's often, you know, obviously the interest of the litigation itself, but also the much bigger political picture and, and the, and the uh, understandings and narratives that you're trying to advance. I think it's actually very useful in that respect, because I agree that we certainly need to keep one eye on this. I think it's actually useful from the government's security perspective to bear in mind that whether and to what extent the PRBs will continue to function can matter. Right. Can, and, and if you pull back on that, it will cause friction, perhaps, perhaps even legal friction that gets enforced in court. And so insofar as this becomes something that provides a little bit of additional leverage for proponents of continuing the PRBs, if it becomes internally useful in that way, that's, that's actually quite a good value add. All right, we'll see what happens. I predict this one's going to get dismissed um, before too long, but it perhaps has already served a function because here we are going on and on about it. Although uh, apparently, as we've talked about before, we are not emblematic of, the, of no. the, the attention makers in this space. No, this is true. But hey, we've got our audience. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> um, 
other exciting stuff after months and months and months of asking what is going to happen with Congress and the need to renew the Section 702 surveillance legislation before the sunset expires. Um, it looks like we finally know the answer. Now, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, the 17th. Um, it is pretty clear what's going to happen. Here, here's why we say that. Um, the bill that passed the House already uh, was being filibustered in the Senate. And last night— Well, I put fil- filibustered in sort of new school ways. Not, right, right. We're not talking Mr. Smith goes to Washington. No, no. We, did, we didn't have sort of Ted Cruz reading Dr. Seuss. We, we had—but we had a filibuster yes. uh, under Senate rules. And then um, somewhat dramatically, uh, you could watch this all go down on C-SPAN last night. I was on the plane getting all of your Twitter updates. Ah, I see. I'm happy to be of service. <laughs> I was live tweeting this while watching C-SPAN. And even the C-SPAN announcers were saying, well, this is, a, this is unusually dramatic for us. We're actually going to do a play-by-play play here of, uh, you know, they they were showing the well of the Senate as uh, after the first wave of I and nay votes came in on cloture. My friends, cloture is what we call the process of trying to end a filibuster. It requires 60 votes in the Senate. So a supermajority vote is needed to end the filibuster. For for all legislation and for uh, Supreme Court nominations, but right. not for lower court nominations. Exactly. So you may have heard of the nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster. It's only it was a low yield nuke that took out only. A, oh, a, was it a low yield? Uh, that's a whole separate topic. Uh, we'll stay with this one. So it was not clear they were going to get it. Now, part of what was going is Senator McCain, for health reasons, couldn't be there. Um, they got up into the 50s on the uh, the votes for cloture, and there were a, just a handful of senators who were uncommitted as far as it went. And you could actually watch on C-SPAN as Senator Kennedy kind of would bounce back and forth between one huddle that had uh, Senator Cornyn and, and, and Mitch McConnell for the leadership, talking to him, encouraging him to vote in favor. And then there you could see Ron Wyden and Rand Paul and, and another group over there, you know, cajoling him not, not to do it. And it just went on and on until you, you see him turn from Cornyn and, and McConnell and kind of move past Wyden and approach the well and give a thumbs up. And there was one critical vote. That left it in the hands of Claire McCaskill. Senator McCaskill did a bit of the bouncing back and forth, but relatively quickly gave her assent. That was cloture. That meant that there were 60 senators willing to uh, end the debate. And but, but it wasn't 51 Republicans and nine Democrats. No, no. This was a, there was a uh, bipartisan uh, divide on this, if you will. Which was so odd. No, I, you know, so I no longer think this sort of thing is odd. I just think that we've entered a period in which on, on a certain set of issues, and certainly privacy-sensitive ones are among them, um, you have genuine wings within each party. Uh, or at least, uh, at least discernible wings, and, and on the whole, that's a that's a good thing. I think. Uh, yeah, but, but but do you really think that's was? I mean, do you think none of this was caused by the misinformation campaign perpetuated by the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and the president about FISA? Well, that's a, that's a. I, you've just introduced a whole new set of topics that I don't think was related at all to what I was saying a moment ago. No, 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 but, um, no I, I, not what you were saying, but but with regard to why there were Republicans who voted against cloture, not just that, right, forget the merits, but why why there were Republicans. I mean, the fact that it came down to Kennedy and McCaskill was only because so many Republicans voted against cloture on the administration's own supported. Right, no, and I think it's a, so there's, there's two things at work here. You're, you're raising the possibility that part of what's going on is the internal fracturing uh, led by uh, Devin Nunes and, and also exacerbated by Donald Trump, where um, there's this sort of schizophrenia about whether the administration is for or against intelligence uh, reform legislation or intelligence extension legislation, or if instead they're going to align with the libertarian and, and left coalition that, for privacy hawk reasons, wants to dramatically or at least sharply limit what, what's going on here. Um, there's clearly some of that. I, I don't think that the ham-handed presidential uh, kerfuffle caused by his retweeting something that uh, Napolitano said on the, this Fox and Friends show the other morning probably affected votes here. I think what you've got is a division, certainly within the Republican Party, between the more traditional national security hawks and the privacy hawks, uh, em- emblem emblematic, of course, would be Rand Paul. Um, And there's plenty of others, though, that have have similar type of leanings. Uh, And then you've got this additional layer of the politics where, wait, which way does Donald Trump want people to go? I don't think that's driving the train too much, although it clearly has maybe some marginal effect. But I think if you imagine a situation where 
Trump was kind of silent on this and there were no late breaking interventions, you would still have some Republicans on both sides of this issue, some Democrats on both sides. I think it just tells you that um, like an increasing number of issues, the GOP and Democrat labels, the R's and the D's, don't tell you everything you need to know about where someone's going to come down on well, the Well, I mean, that's always been true on surveillance, right? I mean, you know, Raul Labrador talked about the wingnut coalition back when we were talking about the USA Freedom Act, right? The sort of the the left wing and right wing of the respective parties against sort of the centrists, right? I just, I don't know. I That's not, I, when I look at who voted against cloture, um, it doesn't quite line up the way that, for example, you saw it during the USA Freedom Act debates. And I think that there's more here than meets the eye. But whatever. Well, the key thing is cloture happened, which means that the 30-hour rule kicks in. So 30 hours of Senate time expire. When that's done, there will be a simple majority vote on uh, this bill. And it will go through. It seems very uh, – barring some extremely unexpected development, this thing is going to go through and become law. So, my friends, let us tell you what is it that's going to become law. What happened? Um, and I think, Steve, before we dig into the, the particulars of the, the handful of most important moving parts in the FISA uh, Amendments Reform Act, um, you can't call that FARA, we're going to have to come up with something else, the, the, the early 2018 act, uh, we should hmm. note that there was a little bit of political ground clearing that happened sort of quietly late the week before. Mm-hmm. So this was interesting. I, I wasn't aware of this until um, you know right, on, right at the time of the debate. So unbeknownst to most observers, on Tuesday last week, on the 9th, President Trump issued a a national security memorandum directing the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, uh, to issue, and I'm quoting here, issue and release publicly a policy requiring that each element of the intelligence community develop and maintain procedures for responding to requests from federal, state, local, tribal, territorial government officials, for non-public identity information concerning known unconsenting U.S. persons where that information was originally omitted from disseminated intelligence reports. Steve, give me a, is, there a, is there a shorthand label for that fact pattern? What, about collection? No. Oh, un- unmasking. Unmasking, yeah. unmasking, yeah. So the president kind of quietly last Tuesday sends out a directive to DNI Coates saying, <laughs> hey, you got 30 days to produce a memo on unmasking procedures. And of course, this is you know what you were referring right. to earlier, the heart of the faux scandal, the right. alleged unmasking scandal, which was basically largely all made up, but nonetheless had roiled the political waters so much in a way that was endangering 702 renewal. And this bill doesn't have, you know, any kind of dramatic change to unmasking. So suddenly there's this initiative that's met on Thursday last week with a new intelligence community policy guidance duly issued just 48 hours later. Hmm, that was quick work. Funny how that works. So this thing was arranged. Uh, DNI Coates issues... uh, uh, guidance 107.1, request for identities of U.S. persons and disseminated intelligence reports. And what it is is no more, no less than I would say this is a, an attempt to settle the unmasking issue through executive action, taking it off the agenda for the legislation, mm-hmm. and helping to ease some of the friction that was getting in the way of 702 renewal. What does it say? Well, my friends, it doesn't didn't say really too much that didn't already exist. But uh, to, to paraphrase and summarize, um, the Director of National Intelligence orders all the intelligence community agencies to uh, create uh, written policies. Of course, many, if not most of them, already had this. Written policies on unmasking requests. That is, you know, there's an intelligence report. It doesn't say the name of a U.S. person. It says U.S. person one or two. And someone who receives that, the, the Samantha Powers of the world, they receive this. They want to know who it is because maybe the context is someone talking to the Russian ambassador. And it seems relevant to know whether somebody's talking to the Russian ambassador. Who is it? Um, and it requires the policies to document who's making the request, um, what report does it concern, who uh, will receive the information if we unmask it, and what's the factual justification for it. This is already existing policy, my friends. Uh, So it's being sort of documented here. But then the the novelty, if there is one here, is uh, the specific section in this new directive that says, here's how it should work when it's in the context of a presidential transition. Hmm, that's highly specific. And it goes on to talk about, uh, you know, how the same rules basically apply, but also the head of the agency must get concurrence from the general counsel 
of that agency before granting the unmasking request, and how within 14 days, the chair and ranking member of the intelligence committees must be notified that this has occurred when it's unmasking pertaining to a transition team member. So, you know, all that's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of this. And if this helps the unmasking controversy go away. It won't. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised since this did clearly have uh, Trump personally involved in settling some kind of deal to try to address this issue. This should at least take some of the wind out of those sails. Until the next time someone gets on Fox News and talks about how the reason why the president's in trouble is because of all that violations of FISA. We'll see. We'll see. I think that for now, at least, it was enough to take that issue out of the mix as the Senate dealt with the filibuster. Um, <laughs> so you might be wondering, OK, so this thing that's about to become law, what does it really do? Uh, and Steve, how are we doing on time? Are we? Uh, we're getting we're getting we're getting deep into the into the hour we promised. All right, then let's let's do this very quickly. Um, the issue that did pertain to 702 that really did require attention and that was properly the subject of intense controversy is this question of under what circumstances, if any, should the FBI be forced to go get a warrant before, for criminal investigative purposes, making a query or making use of the fruits of a query of surveillance, of communications content that was generated through 702 surveillance, which wasn't, you know, 702 surveillance is not done for criminal investigative purposes. It's done for foreign intelligence collection purposes. This was the hot button issue. And uh, I think it's safe to say that what is going to be in this bill is way short of what the privacy hawks wanted, um, uh, perhaps a little more, but not much more than the security hawks would would have uh, would have been willing to live with. In fact, I think this is relatively harmless from their perspective. There is a there is a warrant requirement here. It's really nuanced. And let me just summarize, and then we won't go into any of the rest of the bill. We can save that for later. Let me try to summarize how the new warrant requirement works. This is from Section 101 of, of the new bill. Um, the warrant requirement is triggered only when the following uh, at least six factors, as I count them, are triggered. Number one, the entity that's seeking to access the fruits of collection, it's got to be the FBI. So this only covers FBI. Second, it only covers FBI when FBI is in its, quote, predicated criminal investigation mode. Uh, now that's interesting because a predicated criminal investigation, sort of the you know the the full bore, it's either a full investigation or, or preliminary, but it, this is sort of the the main investigative mode. It's it's more serious than the assessment mode. Interestingly, assessment mode doesn't trigger this by the terms of the statute. An assessment query that 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 doesn't trigger the warrant requirement, which that doesn't make a ton of sense. I'm not sure how purposeful that was, but it is what it is. Um, Third, if you've got the FBI and they're in predicated criminal investigative mode, you also need that it, it can't be an investigation that concerns national security. We, they didn't want to impose a warrant requirement on security, national security investigations, so it must be some non-national security type of topic. In other words, general criminal law enforcement. Uh, fourth, this, only, this is only triggered by a request for contents, so metadata that may be the fruits of 702. That's not covered here. Uh, fifth, the communication that may be turned up in a 702 database query has to be one that uh, involves US person uh, as a search term, a US person as a search term, and was run originally for some purpose other than foreign intelligence collection. Now, I haven't really sat there and parsed that language <laughs> as closely as it needs to be, uh, it's a, it's a it. mind bender, but I, I'm going to spend some time. Maybe next week I'll come back and talk more about what I think is going on there. Um, that seems fairly tricky at a minimum. Now, last, the sixth factor, there's an emergency exception. If there's a reasonable basis to believe that the information uh, would help to mitigate or prevent a threat to life or serious bodily harm, the warrant deal goes out the window. Um, but if all those boxes are checked, so if you have a run-of-the-mill criminal investigation by the FBI um, then, and they want to get – they want someone – access to the content of a communication that was originally captured via right. 702, then after getting the attorney general to personally sign off on it, you go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and you make an otherwise ordinary warrant application, probable cause about crime – not the usual foreign intelligence surveillance court focus on foreign power status. What a super straightforward way to sort of, you know, deal with this problem. Yeah, you know, it's uh it's it's not nothing. 
right? It's, it's not nothing. complex, but it, it, it does, I think, go to at least the center the center ring of the area that the privacy hawks were most concerned about. That's right. There are plenty, as I just outlined, there's plenty of little workarounds and complexities. There's indeed, there's, there's more to say about this that I'm going to talk about next week. But, um, you know, that is a change. Yeah. I think the the question is, given the track record with the government sort of taking advantage of these workarounds and loopholes in other contexts, how how significant a constraint will this prove to be? We may just have to wait and see on that score. Yeah, and, and you know, as I'll, I'll detail next week once it's in uh, once it's been signed into law, there's a lot of oversight and tracking of data and reporting that's mm-hmm. designed to uh, you know assure the cynics like you that uh, whatever does happen will, in fact, at least be known to the members and the inspector generals and so forth. And that'll be cold comfort to some. Indeed. All right. I think we've said what we should say this week about the world of national security law. Indeed. Let's get frivolous. Frivolity. It's frivolity time. Our topic? Uh, Sitcoms. Okay. This raises a question. What are the criteria involved in deciding what Sitcoms are best, and and are we saying and are we going like best sitcom from start to finish, or like sitcoms that had a great particular couple of seasons? So so for example, right, um, How I Met Your Mother, brilliant for two or three seasons, and then really I think ran out of steam. Um, Roseanne, I grew up on Roseanne, but the last season was so like the the sport the the sort of the the shock sort of um, pivot at the very end of the last season spoils the whole last season and in some ways ruins the show. So I, th- I, I think that you're absolutely right that um, there probably need to be separate awards. There, there's probably sort of a lifetime of the series achievement type award where there could be it could be uh, a special quality of being able to sustain it over time, right. uh, including despite changing characters and right. all the rest. Right. And then there are some sitcoms that were brilliant for a while and then just got old because the, the network wouldn't cancel they them. Flew, they flew too close to the sun. Right, right. So, you know, I, I feel like The Office is like that. Uh-huh. I think The Office... The American, I have not watched the British version, the original, but the American version was so awesome and so wonderful for a long run, mm-hmm. and including through some transitions of characters, but but it went on too long. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I would say Friends is one of the all-time greats, but Friends <laughs> is an example of this where the first few seasons, <coughs> the first few seasons were really enjoyable. Well, I actually think in Friends it was the middle couple of seasons that were really the best. And then by the end, when everyone's getting like a million dollars an episode and it's just like a vanity yeah. project. Well, and one thing I'll note happens in a lot of these shows, and it definitely happened in, with Friends, the characters become caricatures. Right. of themselves. That's so, right. uh, you know, Joey goes from being, in Friends, goes from being sort of this this hunky type guy who's a little dim-witted, but not much. He's more street smart, if right. anything. Right. He, he becomes almost, you know, almost a fool. He becomes almost end. Joey from Blossom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Ross becomes a, an extreme caricature. Oh, that's a nice Joey. Thank you. Okay, so so saying that, we also have to note there's a question about you know live action versus like cartoons. Like, does The Simpsons count? No, Simpsons is not a sitcom. So the, the Simpsons is animated. And, animated and, is its own category. Yes. So King of the Hill goes in that. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, what about um, generational? So you know, there there are people. There's the '70s wave. Listen, I mean, you obviously our interests are going to be defined by our age, right? <laughs> Indeed. I mean, you're, you're what, like eight or nine years older than I am, right? Ooh, so, we don't need to get into uh, such uh, uh, details. Let's just. I am solidly Gen X through and through. <laughs> I have no at idea many, what I am. at many levels. I don't know what I am. Yeah, you're whatever came next. You're Y. I'm Y. All right. So speaking of Y, um, what, let's throw some out there. What are some of your favorites? So I actually think one of the, I, you know. I am a huge fan of 30 Rock. I think it is. I think that you know any list of the great sitcoms of all time probably does have to include 30 Rock somewhere, just because Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin are so damn smart. Okay, that's. I've, I've actually not watched a lot of it, but really liked the ones I saw. Well, so there's a sign there, Bobby. And, was and, it 30 minutes or one hour? Is there a format was, issue there? I think it was 30 minutes. Oh, okay, all um, right. And 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 I also think that that 30 Rock held pretty consistently. Um, start to finish in its in its presentation. Well, I would never vote against Tina Fey in particular, so that, I'll, I'll accept that uh, without knowing it. Okay, I'll throw out there Frasier. Yes, Frasier, yes. In honor of my brother-in-law who writes for the Goldbergs and who thinks that, you know, Dr. Frasier Crane is the greatest character of all time. Of course, that begs the question, Frasier over Cheers. Yes, Frasier okay. over Cheers. Okay. Um, I think that Cheers... Uh, it doesn't beg the question. It yeah, raises the question. Yeah, indeed. It I does, often misuse that that phrase. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, well, actually, there's quite a bit wrong with that, but we'll let it slide. Um, Cheers, obviously, was incredible in in some respects. Um, I do think it went on too long. Um, Frazier had sort of more bite. Frazier had a little more seriousness yeah. to it, and it managed. It was it was still funny. It was obviously yeah. closely 
related in its humor. Yep. But I, I thought that they actually managed to pull long narrative arcs out, yep. that in, in including culminating the whole series in a good yep. way. Yep. Um, they had long narrative arcs that really were appealing. Cheers had that a little bit with the Shelley Long, yep. you know, the yep. Sam and Diane deal. Um, it was not that appealing to have that be finished off and then try to get, try, let's sure. do the same right. thing. Let's just right. have a, a brunette this time. Welcome, Christy Alley. Uh, <laughs> you mean so, Savick? Um, <laughs> we've already had my opinions expressed on the show I against so, so even though I've already poo-pooed it because it ran out of steam I, I do want to put in a vote for at least the early seasons of How I Met Your Mother um, oh yeah so, so it loses major points for basically everything that happened from when Marshall's dad dies till the end yeah. like from that point on it just I don't know what they were thinking but it was all downhill but the first couple of seasons I have never laughed harder at a television and and I think part of this is generational like it it struck a chord with me that here were late 20 and early 30 somethings right when I was in the same age experiencing some of the same you know the Murtaugh list right uh, things that we've gotten too old for I mean it's just the, the, the depth of how that like you know taking a bus right um, <laughs> sleeping on a friend's futon right helping your family members move like you know the this i i completely relate because i felt that way about friends yeah um living being part of a, a group yeah. of guys and gals living in new york yeah. in, in exactly that time period and, and apparently not working not not working and having all this money i want to know where they got the money to afford <laughs> the apartment that they had yeah, you can't so the problem so one question is right how hard do you have to suspend uh, a reality you know how do you oh, have yeah, to suspend disbelief because i feel like there's less disbelief that has to be suspended for how i met your mother than for friends here's a question does arrested development count as a sitcom because that not the, not the remake the original run so having was, just been to the frozen banana stand yeah in uh in in where we're in newport beach oh, right that's awesome um the, we keep the money in the banana stand um i don't know it, it feels like it's a, in a slightly different genre of like you know i mean once you bring is that the, just because it was non-network yeah maybe yeah. well because you can do stuff in non-network shows that you can't like the network sitcoms yeah. have such a sort of you know formalized format oh my god um so this is this is actually i don't think by any stretch one of the great sitcoms but certainly one that was near and dear to me in my formative years um i have to say growing pins <laughs> kurt cameron at his finest yeah uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure. We, I definitely would not apply the word great, but I enjoyed the yeah. show back. Formative. In the, um, I guess I felt sort of that way about Family Ties. Uh-huh. Um, Urkel, you're you're an Urkel guy. No, I was never oh, big. Family Urkel. Ties, not Family Matters. Family Ties, not sorry, Family I, I'm Matters. I'm sorry. Now, see, more Michael J. Fox than, uh, than, yeah. than Julia White. Yeah, see, but, but that's the difference between the, the eight years between us. That's Family Ties versus Family Matters. There you go. That's by the way. That is the title of this episode. Family Ties versus Family Matters. Come on. I mean, right, I'm writing just, it down. That's just so. Uh, oh, we should. Say by the way, oh, speaking, speaking of episode yeah, titles, yeah. Uh, so apparently what, we're bad for business. Well, you know, I got we got to note that uh, Dolores O'Riordan, lead singer of the Cranberries, died this past weekend, or what seems clearly going to turn out to be very tragic circumstances. She's had a, a tragic turn of events in her life in recent years. That, that much is clear, and and uh, I think succumbed uh, over the weekend. And we had just last week used uh, a line from Zombies in honor of Pitch Perfect and indirectly in honor of her as our show title. So we'll try to be a little more cautious there. So, um, so you look, family matters, what, what could go wrong? Family matters. Okay, if anything dies. does go wrong with any of the cast members from either of those shows, we will I, never name much our, more careful. Our, our episodes will just be numbered from here on out. Okay, now I think any discussion of great all time sitcoms has to include Seinfeld. Well, yeah. That's, that's, that's just like a given. That's like Jordan's on the list. Okay, who else? So, but here's the problem. So I agree with that. I, I, we've had this conversation about Veep before, right? And, you know, I think if Karen were here, she'd be fighting for Veep as one of the great sitcoms of all time. It's not the kind of humor that I enjoy, right? Really? Like, like I get why Seinfeld was amazing. I would watch Seinfeld when it was on. What, how do you feel about Larry David as a type of humor? Yeah, you know, no, I'm just. I'm not what about a Larry like David Three's person. Company back in the day? Like the discomfort humor. I don't like. I don't like feeling like I don't like. Ha ha, that's uncomfortable. I just. It's just a personality. What about the time point. Kramer? The, uh, I was living in New York at the time, and there's an episode where Kramer they go downtown. And yeah. He decides to become yes. a tourist. And he gets lost and calls but, Jerry from the corner of First and First. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> listen. They're they're so. As a New Yorker, right, there are yeah. really – I mean, Seinfeld is enjoyable even if you bracket out all of the awkward humor, yeah, right? Yeah. Like the, the there's so much baked in, built in, wonderful oh, yeah. stuff, which is why even even to my taste, it has to be on the list. Um, but I just – it's it, it's call it, a, call it a failing on my Fair part. Fair enough. But I just – I don't like awkward humor. I will. Humor. Uh, Cosby Show. Uh, yep. Hard to imagine a more impactful show nope. in some respects. Yep. Uh, 
notwithstanding the way Bill Cosby turned well, out. Uh, oh, Dr. Huxtable, how, how could, how could uh, you? Um, here's one uh, that I, I think people have mixed views on for a host of reasons, but I think you do also have to take these in the context mm-hmm, of their times. Mm-hmm. MASH. Yep. Um, Although is that, a, excuse me, is that a sitcom or is that a drama? It, it treaded the line. A drama. It, it wasn't actually all that funny, and right. certainly towards the end, in the way it culminated, very, yep. very powerful emotionally. All right, one last question: What is the best sitcom on today? Hmm. Well, if we apply the, you can just pick a season. Modern Family yep. and then closely followed by uh, Big Bang Theory when they all first came out and especially once they hit their stride after a season or two both just absolutely brilliant it's the geek in me of course that loves Big but, Bang you Theory know, now that my, I mean having a brother-in-law who actually writes for a sitcom right I mean my brother Matt Myra writes for write, writes for the Goldbergs um, it, it is now increasingly clear to me how impressive it is that the writers for these shows are able to keep them funny for so long. Oh, I agree completely. And one thing, you, you, it's interesting, when you, once you know who's the writer at different episodes, yep. and you, you realize, like, well, sometimes it's good because you like the style of that particular right. person. And speaking of the Goldbergs, there's, a, there's an episode that Matt wrote that ends where, where they reenact a stunt that Matt tried as a kid. And at the very, in, in the end credits to the episode, there's actually the original video of Matt oh, himself. I do, I do like that, um, that they do that. Of Matt himself trying the stunt and biting it big time. And I'll, I'll just leave it there for those who we'll are We'll give them an honorable mention Goldberg's then. watchers. All right. That ought to do it. I think that's more than enough. Because certainly our football predictions aren't going anywhere. We're not, we're not. Yes, we are avoiding talking about the playoff predictions. Let's go Mets. <laughs> hey, we signed Adrian Gonzalez. We are totally now going to win the 2007 division title. Can we do the whole thing where we pick the year? <laughs> Can we have young Adrian Gonzalez? <laughs> All right. Yes, the two thousand Met, the two thousand seven Mets had a really good week. Yeah, you know the the Mets do have a little history, and I'm thinking here. I'm looking at uh, you, uh, uh, Bobby Bonilla. Oh my gosh. signing people past their primes. Well, not wait, not only sign wait, Bobby Bonilla. It's not just signing people past their primes. The Mets are still paying. still paying him. Yeah, when does his contract run out? I think it's 2029. The the league really shouldn't allow the deals Mets, like The this. Mets are paying Bobby Bonilla like a couple of million dollars a year until like, I think, 2029. It's yeah, that's insane. like federal government finance. Pass it on to the next generation. Make them suffer, eh? Yeah, well, that's us now. Indeed. Speaking of suffering, let's end this suffering for Indeed. our listeners. Everybody stay safe out there. You can follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney, me at Steve underscore Vladek. The podcast is at NSL Podcast. You know, tell your friends. And after you've talked to the three of them, Tell your enemies. (laughs) Inflict us on them. Adios.